ink to the cross. And Lord, as we look at the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God on our behalf, Father, please fill us with thanksgiving. Lord, fill us with humility. Fill us with awe. Father, fill our hearts with worship to consider Christ on the cross, our King. Would you do that this morning as we look at your word? Father, that we would grow closer to our King as we see what he has done for us, who he is to us. Lord, may we throw ourselves completely on that truth. Father, prepare our hearts to repent, Lord, of the ways in which we are holding on to our pride, the ways in which we are demanding that things work according to our will and not your will. Father, as we see you enacting your perfect will in our passage today, may it remind us that we must throw ourselves upon your will. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John 19. We're going to look this morning at verses 23 through 27. John 19 verses 23 through 27. So this morning we're going to look at the next two stories that John tells us about Jesus on the cross. We're going to look at them together because John makes a connection between these soldiers and these women and then what happens. So while the soldiers are casting lots, John contrasts them with the women and with John and Jesus' mother. And so we want to see this together. We want to see how God worked to bring about this moment. And then we want to see how Jesus was still working even in this moment on the cross. God keeps His Word. I want you to keep that thought in mind as we go through the sermon. God keeps His Word. Just keep it in the back of your mind. Before we read this, I do want to set the scene a little bit. Crucifixions were really ugly things. Sometimes it could take days for the condemned to die on the cross. And so one of the, one of the ugly and horrifying things about crucifixions is that people would be able to come and they would be able to be around the, the man who was dying on the cross. And so friends and family of the condemned would be able to come and they would be there with the man on the cross as he is dying and as he is struggling uh, to live. It's a horrible thing. Enemies of the man could come as well gloat over him, enjoy watching him die. They'd be able to talk with them. It's surreal to us in, uh, in our culture. So John chooses here to tell two scenes from those hours when Jesus was up on the cross. And one scene that he tells us is where Scripture is being fulfilled by a group of Roman guards And there's another scene where Jesus is fulfilling God's scripture. So let's read, beginning in 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Okay, so we're going to walk through this. Our first story here from the cross is about these four soldiers. And so we're going to call this point to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the scriptures. So again, it's this common practice that people would be gathered around, and then there were these guards that were there to make sure nobody took Jesus off the cross. They could come and they could see him there and they could engage with him, but the guards were there to make sure that nobody tried to take him down off the cross. And also it was a common practice in the day that in a crucifixion, the executioners, those who were there, they would get the clothing of the condemned man. And so since there were four of them, they split up the different articles of clothing and they were left with this tunic. And this tunic was all one piece and so they couldn't you know, split that four ways. So they decided they would cast lots for it. And very simply, John tells us that happened to fulfill the Scripture. Specifically, we know to fulfill Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I want us to think about at least three things that uh, should come to our minds in this story. And the first thing is this. He is showing us, John is showing us again, that what is happening right now is all a part of God's will. It is all going according to plan. You notice that throughout the different sections of this particular story, John has found ways to make sure that the reader knows, hey, as awful as this sounds, it is going according to God's plan. At every step, he is reassuring us. And perhaps we need that reassurance. If you were, if you were reading this for the first time, if you, if you were wrestling with this initially, maybe you'd heard about Jesus, but you didn't know anything about Him, and you didn't know anything about the story. Perhaps you need this reassurance, considering that Jesus, the star of this book, is now on a cross. <laughs> and He's suffering a terrible death. Are you sure that God is still in control even at this moment? And John wants you and I to know for a certainty, not only is he in control, you know, sometimes we think of in control, right? So like you come into my house, it's gotten a little less as the kids have gotten older, but not much. Sometimes you come into our house and it just sounds like a zoo. Right? It's just, you know, random things flying by, random noises being made in other rooms, you know, random crashing. And I'll just be sitting there reading my book. And I'll just be like, don't worry, it's all under control. What I mean there is, I'm pretty sure nobody's dying. And so I'm pretty sure that everybody's surviving. That's not what we mean here when we say God is in control. You know, things are happening, and He's sort of like, okay, I'm making sure that nobody's going to die today. Um, Actually, that's a bad 
Sorry, that, that doesn't work. But he's making sure that everything's going. No, this is, he is in control as in the sense that even down to the minutia of what is happening, it's going according to his plan. It's going according to his intention. It is going exactly the way he wants it to go, even now. And so even down to this small detail of the guards casting lots for his clothing, this is absolutely a part of what God had determined to do. He would bring this about, even down to the details. He would bring this about. So we got to make sure we don't misread this story. This story is happening exactly how God intended it to do. Jesus said, what about this moment? He called this the moment of glory. And that's what it is. And so John tells us this little story here to remind us. As John is writing this, as this is being spread among the Jews, it's being spread among the early church, it would be extremely important to emphasize that Jesus being on the cross was absolutely intentional. Leon Morris said, Once again we see that his master thought that God was over all that was done, so directing things that his will was accomplished, not that of puny men. And it was because of that that the soldiers acted as they did. So that's the first thing about this story that we need to notice. It emphasizes, again, God's sovereignty over the crucifixion, even down to the details of what people were doing around the cross. God is the author of it. The second and third things that I want to point out from this story have to do with the particular scripture that John references here, Psalm 22. And so the second thing that we want to note about this story is that it is fulfilling a psalm of David. I don't think that is insignificant. You remember last week, last week, what was our whole focus on? Our whole focus last week was on the sign that Pilate put up on the cross that said the king of the Jews. And do you remember what the Jewish leadership, what they wanted him to do? They said, we don't want that sign. Could you put a sign up there that says, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate came back and said, I have written what I have written. And that was God's sovereignty as well, because in the way that John is telling the story, out of the most unlikely of voices, God is telling us what's really happening, and that really is the king of the Jews up on the cross. That is what's happening. And so, I don't think it's any mistake at all that what we're seeing here, it is entirely appropriate that John would reference a psalm of David's as prophecy concerning this moment. You know, Jesus himself references this psalm in the other Gospels. But here in John, this draws a connection for us again between the shepherd king of Israel, the one who was chosen by God, and the one that God made promises to, and the eternal king of Israel. You can draw a straight line between these two men, and God keeps his promises. There it is. This is not a mistake. Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of 
the promise to David. You know, Jesus takes this for himself in the other Gospels, right? When he cries out what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first words of this psalm, Jesus appropriates to himself. John quotes a different section, though. Not that one. And of course, as we've been wanting to do throughout here, we don't want to flatten John's gospel. We want to ask, why did John tell the story this way? That's interesting. So he quotes a section of the psalm, not one that Jesus claims for himself, but he quotes a section of the psalm that shows that all the circumstances of the cross fulfill Psalm 22, even down to the soldiers dividing the garment. That actually happened, and the crazy thing is, that's what Psalm 22 said would happen. So even down to the circumstances around the cross, John is telling us Psalm 22 is fulfilled, the the Davidic psalm here. And so we want to notice that, we want to notice It's not an accident that this psalm is being fulfilled. Draw that line from the promise of the king to the fulfillment of the king. It's right there. But the third thing to note here about this reference is that Jesus isn't just fulfilling a psalm of David. He's fulfilling this particular one, which is the psalm about a righteous man suffering. By referencing here Psalm 22, we don't just see the fulfillment of this prophecy about the garment. We we see the fulfillment of this whole psalm, that this righteous one would suffer terribly. You know, there's a parallel here in the same way as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 We see here it's a righteous man, and Jesus on the cross fulfills it. Now, this is not the only reference to Psalm 22 that we'll see in John 19. There's three others. I'm not going to tell you what they are yet, though. But the psalm here is about a man suffering, about a man being attacked. But he himself is righteous. And what does this righteous man do? He entrusts himself entirely to God. Do you see the beauty of that psalm being fulfilled on the cross with Christ, this perfect and righteous man, with Christ who is entrusting himself entirely in the face of taking on eternal condemnation in the face of taking on the weight of sin for his people, knowing that by taking on the weight of sin, what is he going to receive from the Father? The the eternal wrath of God. Perfect justice. Can you imagine? I don't think we can the level of trust the Son places on the Father in this moment on the cross. Have you thought about that? 
the level of entrusting himself that Jesus gives to the Father in saying, I will take on this sin, trusting that you will punish me for it, trusting that you will not hold back your wrath because he can't hold back his wrath. The fullness of his fury against our sin has to be poured out on his son in this moment. He can't hold back even a little of it or he would not be perfectly just in what he's doing and we would not be perfectly forgiven. And you imagine, read through Psalm 22 again later today and picture the level of what is happening on the cross between the Father and the Son, when the Son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And is entrusting Himself as He receives this wrath for us. The relationship of the Trinity goes so far beyond our understanding. I hope you feel very small when you think about that. Because we can't get our heads around it. Psalm 22 clues us into this, though. He is the righteous man suffering. No one else, certainly not you and certainly not me, no one else could fulfill this psalm like that. So here, what do we see? We see in this story, this reference to Psalm 22, we see Jesus the son of David, he is taking his kingship by dying on the cross. You know, as I said last week, in order for God to have a kingdom filled with his people, which is what we want, we want God's kingdom to, to exist, and we want God's kingdom to be filled with his people, and we want to be those people who are in God's kingdom. In order for that to happen, God, not us, but because we can't do this, God must defeat the thing that rules over us. We have a king over us already, Scripture tells us. From the very moment that Adam and Eve rebelled, we have had a king. That king's name is death, and he rules through sin. As sin entered into this world, death came and death has ruled. And God is the one, and the only one, who can make it possible for us to enter into His kingdom without the taint of sin. That's what's happening on the cross. He is making it possible for you and I to enter into His kingdom. He is claiming His kingdom, and He's claiming it eternally. He is claiming it absolutely. And He's claiming it in the only possible way by freeing us from the slavery of sin, by freeing us from sin, by making us righteous. That's the gospel. And you cannot have the gospel without Jesus on the cross for your sins. You cannot have the gospel and you cannot have the kingdom and the victory of the kingdom without 
Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And that is the moment when he wins. And what our victory in the kingdom looks like, it looks like Jesus dying on the cross. It does not look like us attaining to anything except Christ given to us. That's the kingdom. He's doing it. So I would encourage you guys this week. Last week I ended by saying, who is your king? That's a challenging question. I want you all to know, I'll, I'll just share personally, I, that wrestling through last week was, uh, was really good and really hard for me. You know, we, we, we told everybody that I've been struggling with, um, you know, sickness for the last few months. And I, I, am a, I am a person who really likes to control my schedule. I'm a person who really likes to, to make my plans and do them. I, I really like to be able to take things on and, and handle them. And I realized last week as I'm preparing for that sermon and I'm getting ready to ask you guys, you know, who is your king? Are, are you acting like you're the king and Jesus is the advisor? And I realize I do that. I do that when it comes to my schedule and, and my life and the things that I want to get done. I view myself as my king. What ways do you view yourself as your king? And what you really want is you just want Jesus to go along with it. And I mean, hey, you can even say, I mean, I, I think that generally I, I, I make my schedule to the glory of God. I make my schedule to serve the Lord. So Jesus, what I'd really like is I'd just like for you to approve that and, you know, just send it right on down the way. Um, I've got this. <laughs> Turns out I don't have it. And you don't either. And so what is the way in which you, in your life, are tempted to act like you're the king and not Jesus? He is our king. So much so that you couldn't escape it. You couldn't escape it. Don't miss that God has even the details of the crucifixion. Even the things that happen around him. Even the guards casting lots. So that's point one. That's story one. The scripture is fulfilled around the cross but it leads us to our second story here, which is actually another story of fulfillment. And it's something that tells us a little bit more about the character of the son of David, God who became man. What's the question that we're supposed to be asking as we go through John? Who is Jesus? Who is he? We get another glimpse here. The jewel that's being held up is turned again, and we see a little bit of a different facet of the beauty of Jesus Christ in this story. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, there's argument, and you can read in commentaries, much ink has been spilled about 
can we know for sure how many women are actually listed here because of how John wrote it? Um, it is, you know, his usage of commas and everything. We just, we're just, we don't know. Um, could be two ladies that he mentions here. It could be four ladies that he mentions. It could be three. I feel pretty confident this is four women that he mentions here. There's Jesus' mother. There's her sister. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas. And there's Mary Magdalene. It's unlikely that Jesus' mother Mary and her sister are both named Mary. And there's symbolism here. You have the four guards. You have the four women. You have these four guards who are just contempt. They're full of contempt. They don't care about Jesus dying there. They are just gambling, doing their things. And there are these four women who are there because they love Jesus. They are faithful to Jesus. How awful would it have been to be there, to see Jesus like that? And Jesus was able to see them as well and to talk to them. And again, this is bizarre to us. You really think about what's happening here. He's hanging on the cross. He's dying. There's guards that are there to make sure that these people don't take him down. And his supporters are there while he's dying and he's able to talk to them. And John is right there as well, this disciple whom he loved. And John's telling us what he saw here. And Jesus looks at John and he looks at his mother and he places them together. He tells Mary that John is now her son. And he tells John that Mary is now his mother. And we ask, what's going on here? What's happening? Yeah, so some Roman Catholics, they're going to use this passage to highlight Mary. They're going to emphasize that Jesus made Mary the mother of John, which symbolically shows her role and her position and her priority in comparison to the disciples. She's the mother. But of course, that's reading this backwards, isn't it? He's not doing something here for John by making Mary his mother, is he? He's doing something for Mary by making John her son. And we see that with what happens because... John takes Mary into his household from that day on. So we can't read this backwards. We have to read this as what it is. Exodus 20.12, Deuteronomy 5.16, right there in the Ten Commandments, reads very simply what? Honor your father and mother. The Proverbs are full of statements about caring for your parents. And here in John, the last thing that we see Jesus do. I mean, after this, he dies. The Son of God, he crosses every T, he dots every I when it comes to living righteously. He is perfect at it. Nothing gets overlooked. Nothing is missed. This is the perfect righteous man. D.A. Carson says, It is wonderful to remember that even as he hung dying on a Roman cross, suffering as the Lamb of God, he took thought of and made provision for his mother. But I would take it a step further than that. It's not just wonderful, it's necessary. 
Of course He did. This is the perfect man. He fulfills the law even as He's dying. It seems that Mary is a widow now, and we know that Jesus' brothers don't believe in Him at this moment, which has apparently divided them. So Jesus makes sure with His final moments to honor His mother and make sure that she is provided for. This is not a small thing, by the way. You dishonor your parents in the Old Testament law, and what's supposed to happen? You're supposed to get stoned at the gates. That's what's supposed to happen. It's not a small thing at all to the Lord, our relationship to our parents. It really is a beautiful moment. I mean, he is is up there. Think about this. He is up there on the cross as the Lamb of God, being sacrificed for His people so that they can have eternal life, so that they can have new hearts, so that the Spirit of God can be put in them and they can be new creations made in His image. And yet, He is also taking care of the earthly needs of His mother. Still honoring His earthly duties as a son. I mean, how many sons would sit there and think, I have something more important to do right now than take care of my mom? <laughs> uh, on the, on the, the levels of priority here, uh, can't you see I'm on the cross? I'm, I'm, I'm taking the wrath of God. Uh, I don't think that that's, that compares. I'm about to save millions from their sins. But do you see what kind of king Jesus is? And we see it here as he takes his kingship. He will not overlook anything when it comes to fulfilling his duties. There is nothing too small for him. He will be perfect. As a man, he is perfect, and so he honors his mother before he dies. And it tells you and I, once again, another facet, what kind of king do you serve? He is perfect. He's not going to overlook anything. If he's going to care for his mother on the cross, as he's dying, do you think he would really overlook anything for his servants, for his people, for his brothers and sisters, for his family? Of course he wouldn't. This is a great reminder that you can trust Jesus to take care of those that he has responsibility over. He will do it. Now, of course, it is worth noting, he doesn't say, Mother, how would you like to be taken care of when I'm gone? He doesn't say, Mother, why don't you pick from these options? He doesn't say, Mother, why don't you figure it out? 
He cares for her. But he says, Woman, behold your son. This is what's going to happen. So when you look at your king and you say, King, this is what I would like to happen. Just remember, he's the king. He will take care of you, though. In every way, he is taking care of you. You may not see exactly how he's taking care of you in this moment, but please see what he's doing here on the cross and understand he is taking care of you. He is providing down to the smallest detail for you. And you can trust Him as you live in faithfulness to Him, as you obey Him in all things, as you repent and turn away from the ways in which you try and grab His kingship from Him, and you throw yourself on Him, and you obey Him, and live for Him, and serve Him, please see this moment and realize you can trust Him with what happens. You can trust Him with what He's going to do in response to that. Because He doesn't miss a thing. Not even when He's on the cross, He still takes care of His mother. Isn't this just a beautiful thing? We see the Scripture being fulfilled with the, 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 the soldiers around the cross. And we see Jesus fulfilling the law. This is beautiful. If he as a son does not shirk his duties even on the cross, will he do any less for us? Of course he won't. And so I just want to end here where I began. What was the thing I told you to keep in your mind as we went through this passage? You remember what it was? God keeps his word. Through the events of the cross, that's what we see. God is keeping his word. He will go as far as he has to go. Imagine again the level of trust between the Son and the Father in this moment as the Son takes on the sins of his people, knowing that that is going to result in the awful justice of God pouring out on him. He will go as far as he has to to keep his promises to us and he will not overlook a thing. He hasn't and he won't. Are you trusting him the way he ought to be trusted in? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see here. We see you. We see you above everything else we see you. Lord, it can be easy for us to make sermons about seeing us in this moment. How loved we are, and we are loved. But we can focus on how loved we are and how precious we are. But Father, what we really need to see in this moment is you. 
You keep your promises. You bring about what you said you will bring about. Nothing will stand in your way. It's not about how lovable we are and how precious we are. It's about how great your love is towards us. How unstoppable your mercy and compassion are. How you will do what you set out to do. And you don't miss a thing. Jesus, we praise you as our King. Forgive us for the ways in which we do not trust you. And remind us, Lord, your actions here on the cross, let them be a reminder to us that you are a good and perfect provider, sustainer, protector as a king. All that we need, you will give us. And you won't forget it. So Lord, I pray that we would throw ourselves on you. I pray, Lord, that we would follow you and obey you. I pray that we would trust you, even in the darkest moments. Amen.